Well, this morning we come to Mark's account of the crucifixion. And his account is unique because of its brevity. In fact, Mark limits his record of Jesus' words and actions at the crucifixion to three very short passages. The first is found in Mark chapter 15, verses 22 through just the first part of 24. And they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Notice how Mark spares us the gory details. You know, actually, none of the gospel writers go into much detail about the crucifixion, no pounding of the spikes or quivering of the flesh. You know, modern writers and filmmakers love to, to go there, but the gospel writers don't. Mark simply tells us of the location, Golgotha, or Calvary, if you take it from the Latin, both meaning the same thing, the place of the skull. Then he simply says, and they crucified him. His readers didn't need a description. They knew what crucifixion was. The Romans made it very sure that everyone knew what a crucifixion was. He does add that Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh, which was the custom of the Jewish ladies to, to offer and to help deaden the pain of condemned men. But Jesus refused. He chose to take our pain rather than take the narcotic cup. He tasted the bitter cup for our sakes. He chose to suffer on the cross. Mark then records one statement Jesus made from the cross. And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When we look at all the accounts, we discover Jesus made seven statements or words from the cross. But this is the only one Mark records. He doesn't even tell us what was uttered in Jesus' last cry. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's all Mark has in his account of the crucifixion that focuses on Jesus. Instead of focusing on him, Mark focuses on the reactions of those around the cross. He gives us cameos around the cross, picturing different individuals or groups and their response to the crucifixion. I think he would have us examine these various responses and then compare them with our response to the crucifixion of Jesus. He begins with Simon of Cyrene. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country 
Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Simon was most likely a Jew from Cyrene in North Africa who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. He had probably saved for and dreamed of this trip for years. It was the great desire of every Jew to celebrate at least one Passover in Jerusalem, and he had finally done it. The Passover meal had been celebrated the night before. And he's probably sightseeing in the big city when he stumbled onto Jesus being led down the Via Dolorosa, the way of the sorrows, through the streets of Jerusalem to be crucified. As he stopped to watch, a Roman soldier no doubt reached out and touched him with the flat of his spear, indicating that he had been called into service. He's then ordered to carry the cross for Jesus who, being weakened by the scourging, had collapsed under its weight. Simon's plans for the day had been interrupted by the cross. He hadn't planned on it happening. It just happened. And I doubt if he was very happy about it. He hadn't been moved by compassion to volunteer. He had been forced to carry the cross. No doubt Simon resented the intrusion of the cross in his life. And there are a lot of people like that. They've been confronted by the cross and felt compelled to respond to it, but they resent it. They tend to complain about what they're missing in life and how they're struggling under the weight of the cross while others are having all the fun. They are your martyr Christians, doing what's right, but only because they have to. Next, we see the soldiers. And they crucified him. And dividing up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. The soldiers had seen hundreds of crucifixions. They were used to it. In fact, the soldiers were indifferent to the one on the cross. It didn't matter who was on the cross. They didn't bother to check it out. The sign said he was the king of the Jews, but that meant nothing to them. They had other things to do, and what did they do? They shot craps for the clothing of the one they had just nailed to the cross. They were more interested in making a dollar than anything else. They certainly represent a mass of people today who are more concerned with taking advantage of every opportunity to make a dollar than they are with stopping and thinking about who it is on that cross. They shrug their shoulders in indifference if anyone tries to call their attention to the cross and just go back to their pursuit of wealth or their attempt to make ends meet. They're more concerned about the value of garments 
than the value of the man on the cross. Then the robbers. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. And those who were crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. The robbers were condemned to die, just like Jesus. And they saw Jesus as merely another condemned man. At that point, they could see no difference between him and themselves. He was nailed to a cross, just as they. He had made some pretty fantastic claims, but here he was in the same boat they were in. They thought he was as helpless as they were. He seemed powerless to do anything about their situation, so they insulted him and jeered at him, just like the crowds were doing. Many people respond like that to the cross. They see Jesus nailed to it and hear of all the claims he made, but see him doing nothing. They look at the world. It's been 2,000 years since that day, and people still hate and kill. And things look no better now than they did then. They see him through the narrow eyes of their experience and say, he can do nothing for me. So they never ask. But as Luke points out, one of the robbers eventually saw through the folly of his response. He repented and by faith asked Jesus to remember him when he entered his kingdom. He received the promise that he would. The passers-by are next. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. The passers-by thought Jesus had gone too far. He'd been all right as a teacher, and he did some good works, but he went overboard, and now he got what he deserved. If he had only settled for being a good rabbi, he wouldn't be in that mess, and they wouldn't be laughing at him mocking him. You see, they were convinced his claims had been exaggerated. Claiming to be able to rebuild the temple in three days, no one could do that. It was humanly impossible. There are many today who respond just like that to our Lord. They think he was a good teacher and a good moral man, but they reject his claims to be more than just a man. They reject the supernatural. No one could rise again in three days. So they turn their back on him and walk away, saying, if only he hadn't gone that far, I could have accepted him. And then there are the priests. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, this king of Israel, now come down from the cross 
so that we may see and believe. The priests were certain that Jesus wasn't their Messiah because the cross didn't fit into their idea of the kingdom. Come down from the cross, they shouted, and we'll believe in you. Even though they had put him there, they were offended by the cross. No savior of theirs would be hanging on the cross. He would be leading them in rebellion and victory against the Romans. There are a lot of religious leaders today who are like the priests, offended by the cross. They accept everything but the cross. They like Jesus' teaching and his moral standards, but they balk at the cross. They want to remove all references to the blood and the pain and just have a nice, seeker-sensitive, positive gospel that talks about good things and forgets about sin and its awful consequences. They seem to forget that without the cross, as Paul says, we have nothing. We're still in our sins, and we have nothing good and positive to talk about. Next, we see the reaction of a bystander. And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Hearing Jesus cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, the bystanders thought he was calling for Elijah to come to his rescue. It was then that someone ran up and offered Jesus a drink. At first, it looks like this bystander is moved by compassion, that he felt sorry for Jesus and wanted to alleviate some of his agony, but a, a closer look reveals he was just curious. He wanted to prolong Jesus' life in the hopes that Elijah would come and rescue him. Jews believed since Elijah had been taken to heaven in a fiery chariot, he could return at any moment and, and help those in need. But the bystander wanted to see that happen. He wanted to see if Elijah would actually come and rescue Jesus from the cross. His interests and actions were governed actually by morbid curiosity. He just wanted to be where the action was. He didn't want to miss anything. There are people who respond to Jesus just because they don't want to miss out on anything or be left behind. If there's a chance something dramatic is going to happen, they want to be involved. That's a shallow motivation for serving the Lord. At this point, Jesus dies. He calls out with a loud voice and breathes his last. But Mark still has three more cameos of people around the cross. Pictures of the response to his death. The first is a centurion. And when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the son of God. The centurion had no doubt witnessed the deaths of many men 
But he was impressed by the death of Jesus. He now knew this was nothing to laugh at, as he had earlier done, making light of Jesus' claim, bowing before him in mock homage. The things that happened, the three hours of darkness and the earthquakes, as well as the way Jesus died, victoriously declaring, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, after forgiving his accusers, made him realize that Jesus was more than a man. That was a good response. But it didn't go far enough. He knew Jesus was someone special. He even confessed him to be the Son of God. But there's no record that he ever accepted him as Savior. His recognition fell short of saving faith. Almost everyone recognizes that Jesus was someone special. Most Americans even believe him to be the Son of God. But they never accept him as their Lord and Savior. The centurion's response fell short of what is needed for salvation, so it missed the point of Jesus' death. And there were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. The men had fled. But the women were still there. What a tribute to the undying love of women. Still something is missing here. These women are not gathered around the cross in hope. Jesus is dead. It was a grim moment indeed, a time for extreme sorrow. But not the hopelessness they feel. When they return after the Sabbath day, they come to prepare his body, not to search for a resurrected Lord. Jesus had told them several times that he would be killed, but he also told them in three days he would rise again. They evidently forgot that. They are still emotionally attached to Jesus, but they've lost their faith. How many people do you know who love Jesus and the church but have apparently forgotten the promises he has made? They're always worried about something and are pessimistic about the future. They stick with him even through pandemics, but they face tomorrow with little or no hope. Finally, we have Joseph of Arimathea. And when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, 
Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time and summoned the centurion. He questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Joseph was a secret disciple during Jesus' life. He was a member of the Sanhedrin that tried Jesus, but he apparently failed to speak up in Jesus' defense. He didn't want anyone to know. But something happened. The cross gave him courage to stand up and be counted. He was willing not only to now face the Sanhedrin, but to even go before Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. The cross made all the difference in his life. Of all the responses, I like Joseph's best. He responded to the cross by beginning to live a life that openly demonstrated his relationship to the Son of God. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple, the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where the Spirit of God dwelt, was torn from top to bottom. God was opening up access to himself through the death of his Son. He was making possible an intimate relationship with our Creator, one we can live openly and freely with full assurance of our acceptability because Jesus went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sin. The cross should never be resented as an intrusion into our life. Nor should it be kept in the background while we make a living. No one should view it as a symbol of failure and condemnation, something to be ashamed of, or the object of idle curiosity. It must even be more than evidence that Jesus was the Son of God or something to cling to when all hope is gone. It must be a life-changing encounter with the one who died on it. Anything less is not enough. challenge of the cross is quite simply will you live your life for the one who died for you
Father, we've heard the story of the cross many times. We've seen it in movies, we've seen pictures. But until we actually see our Savior on that cross, until, until we lay a hold of why he's there and what he did for us there, our response, no matter how religious, falls short of what's needed. Father, may we embrace fully the fact that Jesus wants to be our Lord. He died to be our Savior, to make it possible for us to enter into an open relationship with the one who created us and is even now preparing for us a future that goes far beyond anything we dare to dream about or imagine. Let us be changed by the cross of Christ. Don't, don't let us relegate it to a religious corner of our life. May it dominate us, empower us, and enable us to live a life that honors the one who died for us. Thank you, Father, for painting pictures of faulty responses and challenging us to respond the only way that's appropriate to the Son of God on a cross for us. In his name, and in confidence of the relationship we have with you because of him. We pray this, and we say, so be it. Amen. Thank you, Father.